find them and turn with me back to Genesis 32. And we're going to pick up the story in verse 22. Marion read us the first half of the chapter, and we're going to read the second half, and then we'll look at it together. Genesis 32, beginning in verse 22. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jibbuk. And after he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched, and he wrestled with the man. And then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go until you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. And the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. And Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. And so Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. And the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word this morning. We ask now that our meditations upon it and the words of my lips concerning it would be acceptable in your sight. For your glory and for our good. Amen. So you've heard the story uh, this morning. The situation, I, I want to just kind of remind you of the of the story and where we're at at the end of chapter 31. Last week, what we saw was Jacob and uh, his father-in-law, Laban, finally made peace of some description anyways. They sat down. They had a covenant meal together. There was a sacrifice made for that meal. And, uh, and at the end of the meal, Laban got up. He kissed his daughters. He kissed his grandchildren. And then he, he left. And the other side of the story, the other half of the story, begins in chapter 31, verse 1 section that Marion read for us. And we read there that Jacob went on his way. Laban has gone on his way. Now Jacob is going on his way. And verse 1 tells us that as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. And so he has this encounter with the angels of God. Now listen, you know, these encounters are not you, you know, you get these you know, pictures in your mind somehow artistically created, I think, of, you know, fluttering, you know, ladies or little babies or cherubim, you know, floating around. We don't know at all what this feels like or looks like, but he encounters the angels of the Lord. And he immediately exclaims, if, you, if you'll notice, he says, when Jacob saw them, he says, this is the camp of God. And he names the place Mahanaim. Now, which means two camps, double camp is really the, the, uh, the idea. And so what Jacob is thinking in his mind is, I have my camp, here I am, 
and here is the Lord with me. That's what Jacob is thinking in his mind, because the angels have come, they, they, they appear to him. Now, remember, if you go back at the beginning of Jacob's journey, when he took off after, when his mom sent him away to go to Laban, he laid down for a night to have a sleep. And during that night of sleep, remember, God appeared to him, and the angel met him, and he saw the angels of God ascending and descending the ladder, the stairway to heaven. And so God had a... God encountered Jacob at the beginning, and now near the end, God has come and is encountering him again. And it's in this uh, context, that's, that's the situation that, uh, that we find the story this morning. I want us to, to look at it in three parts. The first is Jacob's mess. Jacob's mess. His entire life up to this point, has been one gargantuan mess, all right? I don't know, you know, perhaps you identify, perhaps you have a hard time identifying, I don't know. But when Jacob came out of the womb, we read in the story that he was grasping his brother Esau's heel. And so he got this name Jacob, which means he grasps the heel. But the meaning behind the meaning is he takes advantage of or he deceives, that's Jacob, that's the meaning of Jacob. And so his entire life has really been a picture of the meaning of his name. He has been a schemer, he has been a deceiver, he has attempted in, in just about every circumstance to take advantage somehow of the situation, and he has made a mess of his life. Every single encounter that he has had, every person, his brother Esau, he deceived. His father Isaac, he deceived. He attempted to deceive Laban. And in fact, you know, depending on how you read it, he did deceive Laban. The the situation with Laban, however, was Laban was a better deceiver than even Jacob was. So his entire life is one, one giant mess of relationship problems constantly striving against other people in his relationships until chapter 31. And it's at the end of 31, Jacob offering this sacrifice, sitting down to have a meal with Laban, his father-in-law, who he had been at odds with for a long number of years. And then you turn the page to 31 or to 32 verse 1 and Jacob is on his way. Now, I want you to notice where he is heading. Jacob is heading. Remember, back in chapter 31, God called him and said, I think it's time for you to go back to the land that I gave to your fathers and have given to you. So that's where Jacob is going. Jacob is going back to the land of promise. But when you get to chapter 32, he's headed to the land of promise. But guess what? He's going the wrong way. Because the text tells us, verse 3, Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. Guess what? Edom is not on the route that he is supposed to be taking to the promised land. All right? So he's either bad with directions, he's got a faulty GPS signal, or something else is up. 
And it's the something else that is up that, that helps us in this story. Jacob is going to encounter his brother Esau. It's a pretty significant detour that he's taking on his way home. Why? God has called him back to the land of promise because that's the place of rest for Jacob. But in order for Jacob to know real rest, it isn't just about the land. It's about his relationships. And so he has to go through not just miles and miles of desert land. He has to go through his brother Esau. He has to go through his brother Esau because in order for him to go to the land and experience real, genuine rest, what has to happen? There has to be reconciliation with this brother of his. He has got to get things right with Esau in order for there to be real rest in his heart and in his life. He has to know the reconciliation of that relationship. And so on his way, Even though there's been a bunch of miles, even though there's been a bunch of years, the relationship with with Esau still matters to Jacob. There's a couple of factors that I think are working at this point. The first one is that Jacob has just recently tasted what reconciliation feels like. He has just experienced it with Laban. And so at the end of chapter 31 and that experience of reconciliation, Jacob gets a little taste of what it feels like. And guess what? Have you ever been reconciled with someone? This is yes. This is no. I hope you've experienced it. It's extremely gratifying and sweet. I'll tell you a little story. When I was uh, a young Gosh, when I was a young officer, when I got to Mountain Home Air Force Base, I was a first lieutenant, and I got there, and uh, I began to meet and integrate with our chapel staff. We had four other chaplains on board, so I was the fifth, and then we had three or four, depending on which time period it was, we had three or four chaplain assistants. And so in the Air Force Chaplain Corps, you have enlisted folks who are your chaplain assistants, and then you have your officers who are your chaplains, okay? And in the Air Force, it's just a strange, and, and the, the Army gets it right, all right? That's about the one thing they do right. But they, they get their chaplain corps right. And the way, the, re, the way they let it happen there is the chaplain is the supervisor of his chaplain assistant, okay? So you write your chaplain assistant's performance report, and they report to you. And the Air Force... The two never mix. So it's a very strange and awkward kind of a situation in which you have a relationship of some sort with a guy that you have absolutely nothing to do with. He doesn't write, you don't write his performance report. He doesn't report to you. And so there's this really odd relationship. And I got there and I had a really odd relationship with our senior um, chaplain assistant. We were like oil and water. We did not mix, which was really strange because he was from Alabama and he was an Auburn Tiger as well. War Eagle. 
But we didn't get along. And we had this constant, right? We were constant. And, and I couldn't, I couldn't figure out why it was. I, I, to this day, I don't understand the dynamic. I don't know. All I could ever boil it down to was he, he didn't, he just didn't like me. And I, and I don't know why. Because as best I can tell in my heart, I never did anything to him. And so we were constantly at odds with each other. And, and I always felt like I was going back. And I'll never forget, one day I came into the office. I, I came into the chapel. And I was going down to the office. And as I got closer to the office, the, the, uh, the senior chaplain's office was right there behind the, the, the uh, welcoming office. And, and I heard Sergeant Hall's voice. And, and, and as I got closer, I, 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 was, I was eavesdropping a little. But their door was open, and I stood outside, kind of in between the two offices, and I heard him talking about someone, and it was bad. Like I don't know who that guy was he was describing, but wow, I mean, it sounded a lot like Jacob, and it turned out it was me. He was talking about me, and, and I mean, I didn't recognize the guy he was talking about, and after it was all... I felt terrible that I had heard all this, obviously, for two reasons. One, I shouldn't have been listening. And the second reason was it was me. And it was I was wounded. I was hurt. And so after it was over, I went in and I talked with my senior chaplain about a couple of other things. And then I confronted him about it. And I said, "Were you? did, did you push back at all? Because I heard that. And he said, I think you two need to talk. And I said, well, I think we do. We had talked numerous times before. And so I went in and I talked to him and it was terrible. It was, a, it was awful. And I left and I thought, this is never going to work. You know, this guy, and this guy just makes my life miserable. And a couple of weeks later, he had shoulder surgery and he went, he was on convalescent leave for a while. And I just realized during that period, I have got to, I got to go talk to him. And so I went to his house and I, and I knocked, and his son answered the door, and he kind of, he was like, you know, okay, hey, chaplain, you know, and he took me back to where his dad was laying. And when Joe B. saw me, when he saw me, I, I mean, it, it was, it, it was about like what I think Jacob felt like probably when he saw the angels, okay? It was like, what are you doing here? And we sat down, and I sat down, and I just asked for his forgiveness for whatever I'd done. And we had this, it was really sweet, a moment of reconciliation where he apologized and I apologized and we were just able to kind of put all whatever it was behind us, behind us. If you've never experienced that kind of a, a reconciliation, it's incredibly sweet. And Jacob had just tasted it with Laban. And so as he's leaving there, heading to the place of rest, no doubt it's on his mind. He needs to experience that with Esau. And so he heads through and to Seir on his place to Edom, on his way to Edom. The second thing I think happened was he had great confidence because the angels of God had met him, right? And he had the sense that God was near him, with him, that there were two camps not just his camp, but the Lord's camp was there in his presence nearby. And so I think those two things gave him the confidence to make this move towards his brother, even though technically they were still at war. I mean, for all Jacob knew, the last 
the last thing that he left Esau with was Esau was breathing out murderous threats against him. He was going to kill him. That's the last thing that Jacob has in his mind with his brother Esau. And yet here he has this confidence in order to move towards him. Now, we're going to talk about the rest, but I just want you to think right there about your own life. There's a really practical, this is a great moment of practical theology. Who is that person in your life or persons that you need to move towards, right? In terms of making the relationship right, reconciling. Listen, they don't have to be, they don't have to be believers. They don't have to be, they don't have to be Christians. They don't have to share your values. Because Jesus tells us that we are to um, love our enemies and we're to pray for those who persecute us, right? And so it's going to be really difficult for you to do those things if you can't move towards that person. So who is the Master Sergeant Hall in your life that you need to move towards? Sometimes you have that person. You know they're there. There's a relationship issue. And I think it would be a good thing for you to think about Moving towards that person. Look, you can do it with the same confidence that Jacob did it. Why? Because we have the same hope and the same promise that God is with us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And Jesus has called us. Right? He has called us to go to the one who has something against us and to make it right. And that's what Jacob is attempting to do. The second thing is I want you to see Jacob's movement, the movement that is taking place in his life. He's moving towards his brother Esau. That begins in verse 3. And so he, he goes into this posture, right? Because when he sends out his messengers, they come back with a message. And the message is not real positive. Verse 6. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau. He is now coming to meet you. And, oh, by the way, he has 400 men with him. That's what we call an army. Esau receives the word. Jacob is coming. And Esau says, Well, I'm not going to wait for him to get here. I'm going to go meet him. And so he gets 400 men and he starts heading in Jacob's direction. And Jacob feels threatened. Verse 7. Great fear, great distress grip Jacob. And so he begins to plan. And he takes his people and he divides them up. Right? He gets them situated. The logic is, if Esau is still angry and he attacks us, perhaps you'll only take down half of the group. So there is some planning. There is some plotting in Jacob's ways and the movement. But... There's more than that. And the more than that shows up in verse 9. Because it's the first time we've seen it. What does it say? And then Jacob prayed. And then Jacob prayed. This is a big step. This is is a change. This is a shift. Jacob goes to God and he begins to pray. Now, listen. There are people who are who say, you know, you should just just strike out and go do it and just let the Lord, let the chips fall where they may and let the Lord direct your steps. That sounds wonderful. It, it, it's not always the biblical way. 
And here you see two, two parts coming together. Planning and praying. Boom. There they are. You can, there are n- numerous other places in the Bible where this happens. Um, Joshua is a good passage to see praying and planning coming together. But here is Jacob. He plans the situation. He makes good strategic decisions. And then he goes to the Lord and he prays. And I want you to see a couple of things that he prays for there. In verse 9, first, he leans heavily on the covenant. You see it right there at the beginning. Oh, God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac. Okay? That's covenant language. And so he's calling on this covenant. God, you made a deal with my fathers. I'm leaning on you right now. I'm coming to you because you are that God and you, you appeared to them. You showed yourself to them. Please show yourself to me. The second thing is the calling that God had given to him. Notice in verse nine, second half, God of my father Isaac, Lord, who you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, I will make you prosper. Okay? So notice what he's doing. He's saying, hey, God, you are the covenant-making God. You're the one that loved me. I'm going to call on you because you're the God of my fathers. And I'm calling on you because you're the one that called me to do this. Now, now think about that very practically. God has called you to be an agent of reconciliation. So if you've got that person in your life and you're thinking about going to them, you better start praying about it. But it's a, it, it really ideal. God, you've called me to be a reconciling agent in this life and to be at peace with others. So I'm calling on you. If you called me to go back to that land, surely you're going to do something here for me now, right? And then the final thing is he leans on the promise of God. I'm unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness that you have shown your servant. I have only my staff when I crossed the Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and the mothers of our children. But you have said, you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. Now, what's he saying? He's saying, look, I'm really nervous. That my brother Esau is going to come and he's going to attack us and he's going to kill my wives. He's going to kill my children. What happens if he kills his children? What happens to the promise? It's done. That's it. Because his boys represent the sand of the seashore, the stars in the sky. If they perish, the promise perishes. And so Jacob says, God, I'm trusting the promise you've made that you will be for your name. Fascinating, isn't it? Very straightforward, very, very logically laid out. I mean, it's a whole, that's a whole sermon right there in itself. Verse 9 down to verse 12. He leans on the covenant, he leans on the calling, and he leans on the promise of God. And then, he sends tribute. Now, this looks like a payoff, right? <laughs> it's very strange. Like, when you're reading this, I know you're, you're going, you know, that sounds like a lot of work to me. Sheep, donkeys, 
horses, you know, camels, uh, they're young. This sounds like a, I mean, this doesn't sound like a gift. This sounds like a, you know, he's, uh, he's sending all the work ahead. Ah, no. And that day he's, he's taking the wealth that God has blessed him with because remember, when he took the promise, when he took the birthright from Esau, he was taking not just the spiritual birthright, but the physical birthright. And so this is the blessing of God. And what does he want? He wants restoration. He wants restoration with Esau. And in order for him to have that, part of it is restitution. And so he sends ahead all of these goodies, not just to curry favor. Yes, he wants him. What he wants him to see is he's serious. Listen, he's in this. And think about the position he's putting himself in now. Because there was very, very specific words that he used. Verse 4, he instructed them to say, This is what you're to say to my Lord Esau, your servant Jacob says. Everything indicates finally in Jacob's life, he's at peace with who he is. And so he's sending this on ahead. It's, it is representative of the blessing of God in his life. And he's saying to Esau, it's yours. What I have is yours. So take it. And that's the movement in Jacob's life. It's a beautiful picture, really, right? If you know all the scheming, you've been following the story. Now to see Jacob finally arrive at this point in his life. It's indicative that there's movement taking place in his heart. I want you to see finally Jacob's might. He's taken his flocks, his herds, he's divided them. He's, and the family has gone on across the river. And the text tells us that Jacob was now finally alone all by himself. A number of authors have pointed out that Jacob seems to have put himself Smack dab in position to meet God at this point. It's almost as if he's saying, I'm finally alone, Lord. Let's talk. Let's, let's have, let's have a meeting. And God comes and indeed meets with him in a very strange way. The passage says that after all of this happened, he was alone. A man came and wrestled with him until daybreak. And during the wrestling, during the jostling back and forth, Jacob is hanging on and the man realizes, that the angel of the Lord realizes that he is he's somewhat limited. Why? We don't know. We don't understand that. I mean, this is an angel of the Lord. Surely Jacob wasn't that strong. But somehow he was limited in his capacity in this engagement with Jacob. And Jacob is hanging on for dear life. And he touches the socket of his hip. He throws his hip out of joint. And Jacob just keeps hanging on. And we will learn a few things in this strange encounter that Jacob has with God. Here are just a couple of them. First, it seems to be an indication, almost a living picture that Jacob hasn't been wrestling with men his entire life. He's been wrestling with God. That all through his 
life, as he has had these encounters with these people in his life that, that where he can't seem to get it right, it's really been that he can't seem to get it right in his relationship with the Lord. And so there's this wrestling, there's this striving that's gone on with men, but it's not just men. It's the wrestling that has gone on in his relationship with the Lord. And he's been attempting largely to do it his way, not God's way. Here's the second thing. It seems quite certain that God was intent that evening not to leave Jacob as he found him. That this encounter that Jacob was going to have with God was going to change his life. And how do we see that? We see that happening because the, because the angel of the Lord gives to Jacob a new name. And the name is Israel. Now, what's interesting is that for the rest of his life, Jacob and Israel are used interchangeably. So it's not like Sarah, Sarai, and Abram who get their names changed, and then those are the only names that are used to speak of them for the rest of their lives. In Jacob's case, what happens is he gets a new name, Israel, but sometimes he's referred to Jacob, and sometimes he's referred to as Israel. And some people pointed out, and I think it really makes a lot of sense, that, that the reason that that's so is that it highlights this back-and-forth nature that we have. We're called of God, and yet we wrestle with the old man for the rest of our days. It isn't until glorification that sin will finally be done away with in your life. And so if you're like me, or if you're like the Apostle Paul, if you're like any other man except for Christ who has ever lived, or woman, you know the struggle with the old man, the old person. The Apostle Paul talks about it in Romans 7 where he says, the things that I want to do, those I don't do, but the things I don't want to do, those I keep on doing. That is the wrestling. That is the struggling. And so here is Jacob for the rest of his life, called of God, the son of promise. Sometimes he, sometimes he's Israel, and sometimes he's Jacob. And if you know the struggle, you can identify with what it looks like in his life for the rest of time. Here's the third thing. God, in this wrestling match, leaves a, a mark on Jacob that he'll never forget. When he takes his hip and he puts a big winch in it, and he sends him on his way. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Verse 31. The sun rose. Jacob's just called the place Peniel, says, Because I saw God face to face, and yet he spared my life. Verse 31, the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. God, God came and wrestled with him, and he put his mark on him, which in this instance was his hip, a mark that Jacob would never forget. As we close this morning, I want to remind you that God has put his mark on you. He hasn't winched your hip. But in your baptism, if you've been there, he's put his mark on you. The word tells us that in our baptism, we receive the name of God. The imposition of God's name is on us. The name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is now ours. That is the mark. 
We are His. We're marked out as His people. And He's able to do that because on the cross and in the garden, Jesus wrestled with God in your stead. In the garden, Jesus very powerfully and forcefully prayed to God, if it is possible for this to happen another way, let it happen another way. And he wrestled with God to the point of sweating drops of blood. And then on the cross, he wrestled with God as he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? Why why this? And in all of that wrestling, he took upon himself the sin of us all so that we would not have to wrestle with God in the dark of night, but instead might have the imposition of his name placed upon us. Do you know that? Do you have that name on you? Still wrestling with the old man, still struggling with the Jacob within, but knowing that you have new life. If you do, let me encourage you to carry out what the Apostle Paul has called us to do and be, being ministers of reconciliation. For God our Father has reconciled you to himself through the blood of Christ. And now he sends us out as ministers of reconciliation into the land in which we live. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you this morning for the word. Thank you for the opportunity to come and to hear it, to see upon its pages the calling that you would have for us all. We bless you. We thank you. Father, we pray that as we go into the world, as we go into uh, this week, that we would carry with us the ministry of reconciliation that you've given to us. We pray it in Christ's name.